Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 9th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The Georgia Grand Jury is found to have recommended 39 indictments. Former Trump advisor Navarro is convicted of contempt. Canada launches a public inquiry into alleged foreign interference. Dozens are killed in twin attacks on a passenger boat in Mali. Musk faces criticism for allegedly stifling a Ukrainian attack on Crimea. Palestinian factions clash in a Lebanese refugee camp. Hurricane Lee rapidly intensifies in the Atlantic. A report claims the U.S. border wall disturbed Native American burial grounds. Apple shares slide following China's recent iPhone ban. And Japan launches a lunar mission. Topping the headlines today, according to a court report, a Georgia grand jury recommended indicting other lawmakers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, New York Times, Washington Examiner, CBC, and CBS. According to a court report released Friday, the Fulton County, Georgia grand jury investigating allegations of election interference recommended indictments against 39 people, 20 more than prosecutors have sought to charge. After hearing testimony from 75 witnesses on the question of whether former President Donald Trump or any of his allies had sought to illegally overturn his 2020 election loss in the state, the jury also recommended prosecuting Senator Lindsey Graham, former Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, and former Trump attorneys Boris Epstein, Cleta Mitchell, and L. Lynn Wood. Other names include former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and current Georgia Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. Jones, whom Willis was blocked by a judge from investigating after she fundraised on behalf of his Democratic challenger, is being investigated by a special counsel. District Attorney Fannie Willis decided not to oblige these additional recommendations, potential reasons for which are speculated to include that she didn't believe they were guilty or that a county prosecutor indicting a sitting U.S. senator for federal election offenses could have led to legal challenges over jurisdiction. The report also shows that many of the charges against Trump received a no vote, though it's unclear whether it was the same juror each time. Trump faces 13 charges in total. This comes as D.A. Willis denied House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan's Republican of Ohio request for information on the case, including details about any communications between her office and the Biden administration. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Now for our first narrative spin, this Democratic narrative from the Huffington Post. This report shows that Fannie Willis was extremely lenient with over half of the proposed co-conspirators who attempted to overthrow America's democracy. Michael Flynn, Lindsey Graham, and Boris Epstein, for instance, faced votes overwhelmingly against them, but were saved by the grace of the district attorney. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. Fannie Willis is attempting to criminalize federal employees for doing their jobs as well as dirty Trump's image ahead of the next presidential election. Jim Jordan is rightly investigating this smear campaign because if he doesn't, the Democrats will have the precedent to criminalize all political opponents from here on out. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 30% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th of 2025. Former Trump advisor Navarro is convicted of contempt of Congress. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Politico, CBS News, Reuters, the Associated Press, and USA Today. 
On Thursday, Peter Navarro, a trade advisor to former President Donald Trump, was convicted of two misdemeanor counts of contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the House committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. Navarro, who indicated he would appeal the jury's decision, is scheduled to be sentenced in January, while he'll face a maximum of one year in prison and a fine of 100000 for each count. During the short trial, prosecutors argued Navarro acted as if he was above the law when he defied the subpoena. His defense claimed Trump invoked executive privilege. The jury deliberated for four hours before handing down its decision. The committee had sought Navarro's cooperation because of his claims of fraud in the 2020 presidential election and alleged plan to postpone the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. Navarro is the second Trump advisor to be convicted for defying the January 6th committee. Last year, Steve Bannon was convicted of contempt of Congress and sentenced to four months in prison. His conviction is currently under appeal. Scott, thank you for providing those facts. Our first spin for this story is a Republican narrative coming from One America. It's not surprising that the witch hunt against Trump and his former aides led to prosecution from the weaponized Department of Justice and a conviction from a politically motivated jury. This case should be appealed to the Supreme Court if necessary, so that this injustice against Navarro can be reversed. And we have a Democratic narrative from MSNBC. For a party that preaches the importance of law and order, these actions by the GOP are deeply hypocritical. If this was part of a witch hunt, Navarro could have just cooperated with the House subpoena and proved his innocence rather than acting as though it was an optional request. In our next story, Canada launches a public inquiry into foreign interference. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, BBC News, CBC, Canada's National Observer, Forbes, and The Guardian. The Canadian government announced Thursday the launch of a public inquiry into foreign interference in the past two federal elections. This sets the stage for the next chapter of a years-long dispute over how Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has handled the issue. Justice Marie-José Hogue from the Quebec Court of Appeal has been named to lead the inquiry, which will look into potential interference from China, Russia, and other foreign and non-state actors. She will have access to review security documents and files covered by cabinet confidence, as well as the power to subpoena witnesses, including the prime minister and members of his cabinet, for hearings that will at least begin in public. Democratic Institutions Minister Dominic LeBlanc added that the 16-month probe will start on September 18th, An interim report is expected by the end of February, and a final version will be submitted by the end of December 2024. This is the second such probe into these allegations, with former Governor General David Johnston being appointed in March, but resigning and ending it three months later, citing a highly partisan atmosphere. A majority of lawmakers in the House of Commons passed a motion calling Johnston to resign as rapporteur in late May, expressing concerns over his relationship with the Trudeau family. Johnston suggested opposition to a public inquiry into the issue. Thanks for those facts, Eric. True North brings us the right narrative spin. Trudeau has been obfuscating his authoritarian tendencies and doing everything he could to prevent a public inquiry, even at the expense of faith and confidence in the Canadian democratic system. This move has only been made possible due to intense pressure from conservatives as they fight to deliver real answers to Canadians. And the left narrative comes from Rabble. Trudeau was right to carefully choose how to react to PRC actions because fueling a new Cold War would be a catastrophic geopolitical mistake. It's certain that Beijing seeks to shape reality in its own interests, as every great power does. But allegations of Chinese interference are mainly about suppressing dissent on its own soil, not installing a pro-Chinese government in Canada. 
And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 60% chance that Pierre Poilivre will become Prime Minister of Canada before 2026. Tragedy in Mali as over 60 people are killed in twin attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Africa News, Mint, BBC News, DW, The New York Times, and Al Jazeera. At least 49 civilians and 15 soldiers were killed on Thursday in two separate attacks by suspected Islamist militants on a passenger boat and an army base in Mali, according to the country's armed forces. The attack on the ferry in the country's north near Timbuktu occurred Thursday morning, followed by an attack on a military camp in the neighboring Gao region later that day. The Malian government has announced a three-day national mourning period after the attacks. Approximately 50 militants were killed by the military during the assaults in the conflict-ridden north of the country, the military government said, adding that the attacks were claimed by the local and al-Qaeda-affiliated group for the support of Islam and Muslims. The vessel traveling on the Niger River, a major transport route from the city of Gao to Mopti, was hit by at least three missiles aimed at its engines, according to the operator Kamanov. The army then launched an evacuation operation for passengers on the stranded ship. The attacks came shortly after Islamist groups imposed a blockade on Timbuktu in late August to prevent the supply of vital goods to the historic city, prompting the Malian government to send military reinforcements to the region. Mali has been plagued by instability since a 2012 Tuareg rebellion that militants have exploited and expanded. Recently, attacks surged again when the UN mission in Mali handed over two encampments near Timbuktu to the military after being ordered to leave the country by year's end. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from The National. That dozens of innocent civilians and soldiers have been killed yet again is the result of the Malian junta's short-sighted policies. Bamako's decision to kick out the UN Blue Helmets allowed the Islamic State group IS to double the territory it controls in the country. Moreover, since the regime's calculation to trust the Russian Wagner mercenaries did not work out, an ominous mix of IS terrorists, local Islamists, and Tuareg rebels now threatens to usher in a new era of violence and chaos in the country and the region. And the cradle brings us the establishment critical narrative. The recent deadly attacks are a sad reminder that the terrorist threat in Mali remains very real. However, the attacks are a symptom, not the cause of the problem. The alleged war on terror in Africa is nothing more than a cover under which France and the collective West, with the UN as a tool, ensure they can continue to control the economic and political fortunes of African countries. Countries like Mali, however, have decided to take the rocky road of achieving true decolonization and welcoming new partners like Russia. Elon Musk is under fire for stifling a Ukrainian attack on Crimea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, and Ukraine's Kapravda. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, and owner of the ex-social media platform, previously known as Twitter, has this week come under fire for stifling a Ukrainian attack on Russia's Black Sea fleet in the peninsula of Crimea. It comes after CNN, citing passages of a new biography on Musk penned by Walter Isaacson, reported that the entrepreneur ordered his engineers to shut off his company's Starlink satellite communications network near the coast of Crimea as an attack with explosive-laden submarine drones was taking place. As a result, the drones lost connectivity and washed ashore harmlessly, Isaacson said. Starlink, which is operated by SpaceX, is an alternate method of connecting to the Internet that came to be heavily relied upon by Ukraine's military after Russia knocked out many of the country's more traditional forms of communication. Musk donated many of the terminals for free, 
but began to question that decision once Ukraine's forces used the platform to launch offensive operations. Quote, how am I in this war? Musk asked Isaacson. Starlink was not meant to be involved in wars. It was so people can watch Netflix and chill and get online for school and do good peaceful things, not drone strikes. His decision to disable the system near Crimea was reportedly to prevent a, quote, mini Pearl Harbor, which, in his eyes, could have prompted Russia to respond with nuclear weapons. However, writing on the X platform since the publication of the book's excerpts, Musk said that Starlink had not been deactivated in the region, insisting that he instead declined a request from government authorities to extend the coverage that was already in place. Quote, if I had agreed to their request, then SpaceX would be explicitly complicit in a major act of war and conflict escalation, he said. Nonetheless, among those to criticize Musk was Mikhailo Podolyak, an advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Podolyak said that Musk's decision prevented Ukraine from destroying part of Russia's Black Sea fleet. Quote, as a result, civilians, children are being killed. This is the price of a cocktail of ignorance and big ego, he added. Well, thanks for all those facts, Eric. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from CNBC. In preventing Ukraine from striking Russia's Black Sea fleet, Musk allowed those ships to launch further missile attacks on Ukraine, thus allowing them to inflict more destruction and death upon Ukrainian civilians. A pro-Russian narrative comes from RT. Musk was quite right to prevent Ukraine from attacking Russia's Black Sea fleet in Crimea. Such an attack would have been a major escalation of the war and would have forced Russia to respond accordingly. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This time they predict there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. As, as, as nice as it would be to be the richest man in the world, I don't think it's easy. Having that much influence, uh, that's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right, Eric? Absolutely. Palestinian factions clash in a Lebanon refugee camp. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, BBC News, The Independent, The Guardian, The Times of Israel, and Al Jazeera. Armed clashes between members of the Fatah movement, which makes up the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and Islamist groups in the Ein Ahilwa refugee camp outside of the Lebanese city of Sidon have injured at least 20 since Thursday night. After a month of relative calm, dozens of families have reportedly now fled. Fatah-aligned Palestinians announced Tuesday that their joint security forces would launch raids against the Islamist militants, with Fatah officials alleging that the Islamic groups launched the attack to forestall their goal to push militants out of schools in the camp on Friday. The clashes, which began in late July, were sparked after a gunman tried to assassinate Islamist militant Mahmoud Khalil, killing his companion instead. Later, Islamist militants assassinated a Palestinian military general and three aides from Fatah, escalating the situation into open conflict. In the most severe clashes seen in the camp in recent years, the July violence left 13 people dead and dozens injured in Ein al-Hilway. Journalists in the neighboring Sidon reported the sound of periodic gun and rocket fire emanating from within the camp on Friday. Caretaker Lebanese Prime Minister Najib Makati called Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in early August, demanding an end to the fighting, warning that the Lebanese army would intervene like it did in the Nar al-Bared refugee camp in 2007 to dislodge Islamist militants if a truce was not put in place. Ein al-Hilway, which now hosts tens of thousands of refugees, was established in 1948 to host Palestinians displaced during the establishment of Israel. 
Due to past agreements with the Lebanese government, the Lebanese army has no jurisdiction over the camps, and Palestine is responsible for their security. Those were the facts, and our first spin is Narrative A coming from the Jewish News Service. This is a failure of the Lebanese government to impose the rule of law and maintain the security and stability of the country, including the Palestinian refugee camps. Though Lebanon never misses an opportunity to condemn Israel, Palestinians in Lebanon are treated like second-class citizens. Mostly, though, this violence is due to the failure of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, which has been hyper-politicized. And Narrative B comes from Middle East Monitor. When the camp was established, it was only intended to offer temporary solutions, not to last for 56 years. Though Palestinians are deeply discriminated against in Lebanon, ultimately, the only reason for their presence in the country is because of Israel. And at times, international aid also inadvertently complements Israel's colonial policies toward Palestinians as Tel Aviv prepares to annex even more Palestinian land in the West Bank. Hurricane Lee rapidly intensifies in the Atlantic. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox Weather, New York Post, Forbes, Axios, and the Weather Channel. On Thursday, Hurricane Lee rapidly intensified to a Category 5 before being downgraded to a Category 4. The storm is expected to fluctuate in strength as it continues its track through the Atlantic Ocean. According to the National Hurricane Center, or NHC, as of Friday, Hurricane Lee was located 550 miles or 885 kilometers from the Lesser Antilles and over the weekend is expected to bring dangerous surf and rip currents to the Caribbean, including the British and U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, the Bahamas, and Bermuda. While the cyclone is expected to pass north of the Caribbean island nations, the NHC warned that it's way too soon to know what level of impacts, if any, Lee might have along the U.S. East Coast, Atlantic Canada, or Bermuda late next week, particularly since the hurricane is expected to slow down considerably over the southwestern Atlantic. While strong hurricanes are common in the Atlantic Ocean, more storms have been the subject of rapid intensification. The phenomenon is witnessed when a storm's wind speed grows by 35 miles per hour or 56 kilometers per hour in a 24-hour period, with Lee increasing its speed by 80 miles per hour or 129 kilometers per hour. Category 5 is the highest classification on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale for a hurricane located in the Atlantic Basin. The intensity is defined by having maximum sustained winds of 157 miles per hour or 252 kilometers per hour or greater with Lee being the 40th storm to reach such strength since 1924. Since record-keeping began, only four Category 5 hurricanes have made landfall in the U.S. The Labor Day Storm, 1935, Camille in 1969, Andrew in 1992, and Michael in 2018. In 2022, Hurricane Ian nearly came ashore as a Category 5, but was downgraded to a Category 4 just before landfall. All right, thanks for those meteorological facts. Eric, we have a Narrative A from CNN. Since 1990, 88% of hurricanes in the North Atlantic have undergone rapid intensification, and some experienced an extreme level of this phenomenon. Some scientists will attribute these astronomical numbers to better scientific tools for observation, but the truth is our climate is changing. As the planet warms, simmering sea surface temperatures are fuel to feed these super-intense and enormous storms that have and will continue to threaten the life and property of rapidly growing coastal communities. Narrative B comes from WTSP-10, Tampa Bay. While the rapid intensification of hurricanes is happening and the phenomenon is on the rise, we can't ignore the fact that tropical cyclones are a necessary natural process for the planet. A cyclone simply pulls heat from the oceans in an upward motion and distributes it outward into the atmosphere toward the poles. 
The purpose of these storms is to regulate the planet's temperature. Without them, the weather systems we're used to would go unregulated. Ultimately, humanity must also appreciate the importance of these powerful storms. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance there will be at least eight hurricanes in the North Atlantic in 2023. Have you ever been in a hurricane, Eric? You've experienced one yourself? No, I've never been in a hurricane. I've been in a tropical storm and that's about it. Lost power and, mm-hmm. and uh, really yeah. no damage. My dad lives down in the uh, Tampa area. So he, uh, you know, sem- you know, feels like once every couple of years, he's in some kind of huge storm. Is he a person who likes to uh, evacuate or does he stay put? He hunkers down. So keep your fingers crossed for him. According to the U.S. government, the southern border wall damaged native lands and its ecosystem. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Politico, Al Jazeera, and PBS NewsHour. The U.S. Government Accountability Office on Thursday released a report detailing how construction of a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border during former President Donald Trump's term disturbed Native American burial grounds and caused other damage. The first independent assessment of the damage caused by the 450 miles or 724 kilometers of wall being built after in-depth environment reviews were reportedly waived and Native American tribes' concerns were mostly ignored, also described the toppling of saguaro cactuses in Arizona and the threatening of endangered ocelots in Texas. The 72-page report covers a period from 2017 through January 2021. During this time, the federal government relied on national security concerns to move construction forward by waiving existing protections on the lands and wildlife. President Joe Biden's administration paused construction in 2021, but that has also caused its own negative effects, including incomplete structures like water drainage pipes. The office recommended that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency and the Department of the Interior collaborate on a strategy to mitigate the impacts the wall's construction has caused. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a democratic narrative, and it's coming from the Arizona Republic. It's heartbreaking that this inhumane wall caused so much damage while doing nothing to address illegal immigration and smuggling at the border. Continuing to build the wall would make this disaster even worse. That's why Trump, who has vowed to complete the wall if he returns to the White House, must never get that chance. This has done enough damage to vulnerable people and the environment. And the Republican narrative from the Washington Times. If the southern border wall deterred any illegal immigration or foiled a cartel's plans, it was worth putting up as much as was built, even if there were some minor environmental impacts. Biden's pause on construction is making things worse while making the U.S. less safe. The wall should have been completed for urgent national security reasons. Feels like on one day we hear that uh, there wasn't enough wall built to make it worth and that that Trump didn't get anything done. And now the word is that they built too much wall and it's ruining everything. So which is it? (laughs) Apple shares slide after China's iPhone ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Financial Times, Forbes, Reuters, CNA and Quartz. Apple shares have fallen by over 6% since Wednesday, following reports that the PRC has prohibited government employees from using iPhones. The technology giant has consequently lost nearly $200 billion in stock market valuation. Apple reportedly sells about 50 million iPhones in China annually, and the ban could bring it to 5 to 10 million units annually. In 2022, while iPhone sales in China generated $74 billion, nearly a fifth of Apple's revenue, the ban could affect its global supply chain, as the country is a manufacturing hub for almost all Apple devices. Meanwhile, in Taipei, Largan Precision, which makes iPhone camera lenses, dropped more than 4%. 
contract chipmaker TSMC fell 0.6% on Friday. The news comes as Chinese telecommunication giant Huawei launched two new smartphones, with analysts predicting its smartphone sales to see a jump of 65% to 38 million in 2023. Last year, the U.S. banned federally funded U.S. tech firms from building advanced facilities in China for a decade, as well as prohibited companies from supplying state-of-the-art chips or chip-making equipment to China. Thanks for that tech update, Eric. We have a narrative A from Investopedia. The PRC's ban on iPhones will likely have little impact on the tens of millions of smartphones expected to be sold in China next year. Private sector demand will more than make up for the private sector restriction, as Apple is ready to unveil its newest models, the iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Pro, next week. Narrative B comes from the Sydney Morning Herald. Apple is finding itself in a tricky situation as China continues to encourage domestic technology manufacturers' growth and reduce foreign companies' influence amid heightened Beijing-Washington tensions. The ban reflects Apple's vulnerability in the Chinese market. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's an 18% chance that China's GDP will overtake the U.S. before the year 2030. You're going to get the new iPhone 15? I have a 14 right now, I think, so I'm I'm good for a while. Uh, you know what? I still have an iPhone 11. I try Ooh, to get as much mileage okay. as possible out of my iPhones. I had, <laughs> I had the 11, and I had it for a while, but then a Verizon or whatever my phone company is sent me a thing where I could upgrade to the 15 for free, basically. I guess I'll do that. Man, I'm waiting for that offer. I guess there's just different tiers of customers, Eric. Oh, you know, no, oh, no, oh. no, 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 no. Our final story, Japan launches Moon Sniper Lunar Mission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The Independent. On Thursday, Japan launched a lunar exploration spacecraft in the hopes of becoming the fifth country in the world to land on the moon. The Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency said the HIIA rocket carrying the Smart Lander for Investigating Moon, or SLIM, took off from Tanegashima Space Center in southern Japan. Nicknamed the Moon Sniper, SLIM is designed to land within 100 meters, or 328 feet, of a specific target on the moon, significantly more accurate than the usual range of several kilometers. The XRISM satellite, a second payload launched on the same rocket, is expected to perform high-resolution X-ray spectroscopic observations of hot gas plasma blowing through the universe. Japan's lunar mission expected to start its landing maneuvers by February comes days after India's successful soft landing of its spacecraft on the moon's South Pole in August. Thursday's launch comes after multiple failed attempts, including last year, when a probe called Omotenashi was under the U.S. program known as Artemis. Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from CBS. If this landmark mission touches down on the moon, it will mark a turning point in advanced optical and image processing technology. The success of Japan's mission will make it possible for humans to land on planets even more resource-scarce than the moon. And we have an establishment critical narrative from IET. Countries worldwide spend billions of dollars on space exploration, but very little is achieved. Our planet faces many existential issues, such as climate change, that would be better use of the time, money, and effort spent studying and exploring space. And we have a nerd narrative coming from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that at least four spacecraft will land on the moon from 2022 through 2025. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 9th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more about the Verity Podcast at verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.